With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast, Kevin Valentin. And I'm the other host of the podcast. My name is Kyle Dabro. Kevin, I got to quote DJ Envy for the Breakfast Club here. We got a special guest in the building today. Oh, yes, we do. Ladies and gentlemen, this is my younger brother, Ethan. Welcome to the podcast, baby bro. Glad to be here. Yes, sir. So uh, it's a pleasure to have you here, bro. So I'm glad that you could join us today. Yeah, happy with all the strides this podcast is making. Excited to see the future. Appreciate, appreciate you. Appreciate you. I, I know you guys are uh, are pretty excited about what we saw from uh, week three in the NFL. we got a lot of games to go over. Are you guys ready to dive into these topics? Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right, so just to kind of get things started, uh, we're going to go over the Dolphins and the Bills, probably one of the biggest upsets of the weekend. Uh, the Dolphins moved to 3-0 on the season after a competitive game between Miami and Buffalo. The Dolphins come up on top by a score of 21-19. to uh, It was quite a game, came right down to the end, but the Dolphins move the three and on the season. We'll talk about that first. After that, we'll talk about a really defensive battle between the Packers and the Bucks. Uh, the Packers come out on top by the score of 14 to 12. Uh, they moved to two and one on the season. So that'll be a fun game to go over. After that, we'll talk about probably one of the bigger upsets of week three. Uh, the Colts at home beat the Chiefs. And I know Kev's got a lot to say about that one in particular, but uh, that was one of the bigger upsets for the week, so that'll be an interesting one. After that, we'll kick it to Philly and Washington. Philly essentially beat the brakes off of Washington in this one. It wasn't really a competitive match, but the Eagles have been on a hot streak the last couple of weeks, and uh, that'll definitely be an interesting topic of conversation when we get there. Uh, the last NFL game that we'll go over will be the Jags and the Chargers. This game was just a blowout. The Jags, kind of similar to what I said with the Philly-Washington game, the Jags just beat the brakes off of the Chargers at home, by the way. So the Jags went on the road, beat the Chargers at home in SoFi, 38-10. to And probably one of the more shocking results from Week 2. That was in, not Week 2, in Week 3, excuse me. And that was in the later game slate at the 425 slot. But overall, it was quite a day from Jacksonville. And that will cover all the NFL topics. After that, we'll wrap up the episode with a huge milestone that took place within the MLB this last week or this past weekend, I should say. Albert Pujols, playing against the Los Angeles Dodgers, his former team, hit two home runs in back-to-back at-bats, hitting number 699 and number 700 for the amount of home runs that he's hit in his career. Albert Pujols has been on an absolute tear the second half of the season, and really he caps off essentially what is a remarkable second half of his season by getting 700 home runs. He is one of only four players now to hit over seven home runs, including Hank Aaron, Barry Bonds, and Babe Ruth. 
That is quite a list to be a part of. And now Albert finds himself within that group. And that'll be probably a pretty fun topic of discussion to round out the episode. So let's not waste any more time. Let's dive into the Bills and the Dolphins game. And this was quite a game. Uh, from beginning to end, this was what I think Kevin and I wanted when we were making our analysis last week. Um, we Granted, we were wrong when it came to our analysis. We both picked the Bills to win this game. Uh, but the Dolphins... Uh, provided a huge shock. Uh, once again, I, really, the Dolphins have been quite the team with the shocking results the last couple of weeks. And they do it here once again, beating the Bills by a score of 21-19. to 19. Really was sort of a defensive battle in the second half of the game. Both teams were trading touchdowns in the first half. Score ended up being 14-14 to 14 at halftime. But Tua and the offense for the Dolphins were able to get a touchdown in the fourth quarter. Uh, the Bills had opportunities uh, to put points on the board. They were only able to get three points in the fourth quarter. And they also were able to get a um, a uh, safety. I should say that the field goal came in the third quarter and the safety came in the fourth quarter. But by and large, this was a f fantastic game looking back at it. And the Dolphins find themselves still undefeated going into week four with this result. So Max, to kick this one to you, what are your takeaways with the Dolphins coming up with a huge shocking result by beating the Bills 21-19? I'm glad because I'm a Miami fan, so obviously I'm happy that we won. But from the perspective of a Miami fan for years, we've been off, known to get off to a slow start, sometimes having a good D, but that nothing has changed. Our offensive line still sucks. Armstead was dealing with a foot. Greg Little was in and out of the game. I mean, we didn't play as well as I hoped, but a win's a win. Kev, you're up. All right. Well, a man of a man of little words. Uh, the Dolphins played up to snuff. Let's just put it that way. Obviously, Tua Tagovailoa has been on the mi under the microscope since he's been drafted, and we thought for a little bit, you know, he got rocked, and we thought that he was going to be out for the game with what looked to be a concussion. And we'll get into that a little bit later. He ends up coming back into the game, and Miami ends up holding on. Now, granted, it was a very very close game. It ended up being what I would assume a very defensive battle, which is the complete opposite of what Kyle and I had predicted. But both teams played. Pretty much as, as as much as you, excuse me, as well as you would expect. I would have liked to see the Miami Dolphins run the ball a little bit more. I've had about enough of saying that the, that the Bills need to run the ball more. Kyle and I talk about it every single freaking week. It's like if it's not Josh Allen, nobody running the ball. And outside of, you know, Josh Allen's 47 yards, there were only 13 rushing yards between, excuse me, 13 rushing attempts between Zach Moss and Devin Singletary. You throw in James Cook's one rush and then you have 14. So it's like they don't necessarily run the football as effectively as they, as they should. Josh Allen also threw the ball 63 times. They lean on him too much. His escapability is incredible, but Miami was able to sack him four times. So I'm looking at this and I'm saying the Bills had a lot of opportunities. Maybe since it was a little closer, they could have leaned a little bit more on the run game to keep the secondary of Miami honest. But it really just kind of depends on how you view the game. Tua, again, goes 13 of 18 for a buck 86 with a touchdown. He was only sacked one time with a passer rating of 123.8. So very efficient, very accurate as we know him to be. And, of course, Jalen Waddle is the leading receiver here with 102 yards total with a 45-yard long reception. So... Miami moves to 3-0. They showed that they can do it consistently on all sides of the ball. The defense made stops when it needed to, and the offense got and moved the chains as uh, as efficiently as they could. But overall, 
I'm very surprised with the outcome. I will not lie. I will not make excuses, but Buffalo was missing missing a significant amount of, obviously, defensive stars. They ended up losing a couple of offensive linemen to injury during the game. And there was a little bit of a questionable... It was a little bit of a questionable call, well, not call necessarily, but um, a, a questionable officiating moment, should I say, where Isaiah McKenzie looks like he was going to be able to run and put the ball down, but he has to legally hand the ball off to the referee, and it looked like the ref was kind of taking his time as he knew the clock was ticking. Buffalo had no timeouts. By the time the ref put the ball down, because obviously you can't snap the ball before the referee places it in, its, in the spot, the clock had expired to zero. That's one thing that I'm kind of looking at this and I'm saying referees got to do a little bit better strictly because I believe in any situation, especially a situation where this is a game within two points, um, the refs got to move as fast as the offenses do because it's not fair that there wasn't at least an opportunity for the kicker Bass to go out there and at least attempt to win the game for the Bills. Now, the same could be said about the Dallas game in the playoffs last year with the San Francisco 49ers, but that was a little bit more difficult. I'm just saying as a ref, you can't stroll your way to the line of scrimmage knowing that there is a game on the line. If it's a blowout, it's a whole different concept, but this is a game within two points, a division game. I didn't like it, but again, I'm not making excuses. Buffalo had their chances to come away with it, and Miami comes away with a 3-0 record in the AFC East. I think I got to give a lot of respect to the Dolphins for really proving to me that they could be one of the best teams in the NFL at this point. Because going into this game, I thought the Bills were going to be win this game in a competitive matchup, but essentially, you know, win this game by about maybe 10 to 14 points when it was all said and done. And the Dolphins uh, proved me wrong, and it was really their defense. Their defense is what surprised me uh, in that Week 3 matchup against Buffalo because Buffalo at this point in the year, granted, it's still September, so it's still relatively early in the season. The Bills' offense has been high-flying, to say the least. They basically torched uh, the Rams in Week 1. They did the same thing to the Titans in Week 2. And going into this matchup, I was still confident that Josh Allen and that offense would continue what they did in the first two weeks. But give the Dolphins' defense credit. Like Kevin said, the Dolphins were able to bring pressure today. I thought Melvin Ingram had a solid day. He had two sacks. If you look at the rest of the defense, you had Javon Holland. He also had one and a half sacks to go along with their defensive performance. So the defense was getting after Josh. Granted, uh, they didn't really force that many errant passes from Josh Allen. Josh Allen still had a relatively decent day. Didn't turn the ball over. But... They were able to keep points off of the board from Buffalo, which when you look at Miami's perspective in that regard, they'll take that any day of the week. To hold Buffalo's offense to 19 points with how many points they've been scoring the first two games of the year, they'll take that any day. And when it comes to the Dolphins, the Dolphins did what they were supposed to. They played stout defense, and Tua did enough to win them the game. This wasn't like last week where Tua essentially put the team on his back through six touchdowns in the game against the Ravens. He didn't have to do that today. He was relatively safe with his passes, and when the Dolphins needed a play to make in the fourth quarter, he was able to do that. I think he ended up hitting uh, Jalen Waddle on a pretty nice touch pass that got them within, I think, like the five-yard line uh, towards the end of that fourth quarter, which set them up on that go-ahead touchdown. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, Tua did exactly what he was supposed to do. But despite that, Buffalo was in it. Buffalo had opportunities to win this game. And looking back late in the fourth quarter, Josh Allen had a chance to throw a touchdown out towards the flat on fourth and goal and just missed the pass. And even despite that, after that series had taken place, you have Miami 
have the butt punt within their one yard line and it ends up being a safety. And even after that, the Dolphins, the Dolphins gave Buffalo, I think a minute and a half to work with. And to the Dolphins credit, their defense stepped up when they needed a play to make. And, you know, they didn't get the bills into field goal position. Granted, there may have been a little bit of controversy when it came to the ref placing the ball and kind of dogging it to get to the line of scrimmage. But I'll kind of just leave that for what it's worth. Uh, if you really want to dive into it, I'm not really going to make that point. You know, the Bills had opportunities to get farther down into the Dolphins' territory. They just didn't really execute that well. But really, my main takeaway uh, from the game itself was the Dolphins stepped up defensively. They had probably one of their best, perform best defensive performances performances of the year so far. Uh, Josh Allen and the Bills offense left some opportunities on the board uh, in this game. And the heat, the heat was definitely a factor for the Bills. The Bills looked like they were just dying the entire game. They were just gasping for air, cramping up. Guys were getting hurt left and right. They were on one knee uh, trying to cool down. And even towards the end of the game, you could tell that those guys were just gassed. And even some of the Dolphins players towards the end of the game were just absolutely gassed. Uh, when the fourth quarter ended and the game was over. But, you know, it was a good effort from both teams. Uh, the Dolphins did just enough to get them to 3-0 on the year. And, you know, I imagine we'll kind of talk about this later, but you could make a case that as of right now, the Dolphins could be the best team in the NFL. But that is arguable as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, I just I want to circle back on one thing. And, hey, brother, don't be scared to elaborate. This is your team. You know, obviously, talk as much as you want. You don't have to be so short with it. It's all good. We all we all get nervous, I'm just saying. Uh, I got to talk about this situation where Tua goes out of the game. And it's only under the microscope because the NFL is now looking into a possible investigation as to how Miami implemented the concussion protocol. Now, Max, you saw the entire game. I'm asking you straight up. What do you think went on in that locker room when Tua went out, potentially for what could have been the rest of the game, and he ended up coming back? What were your thoughts? Initially, the hit looked terrible. Like The hit wasn't that bad, but looking at Tua's reaction, him getting up, not as fast, and then him saying, I'm fine, and then you see him stumble like really bad. It looked awful, but then you hear some people say that it was a uh, back thing like his back locked up which is believable to an extent but we didn't handle the concussion fully because I do believe there's more into it that we know of but Emmanuel Ocho a former NFL player said it perfectly where he suffered a concussion mid-game when he used to play and then he came back and finished the game but then afterwards he didn't, he could barely find his house he said and that's because the concussion protocol is a joke in the league. And that's because he said they only asked him two questions. What day is it? Which is obviously Sunday. And then who is the president? So that's a joke of the protocol that needs to be fixed. It's Kyle, I'm, I'm only sending it your way because it's like, I already know my thoughts. Dude, it, 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 the, I, I agree the, with my brother. I, I think that's a wash of a the, protocol if that's truly what well, it is now. Well, to me, the way that I see it, when it came to their explanation that Tua's back was locking up, I find that very hard to believe because it seemed like he was basically out on his feet. I mean, his offensive lineman had to kind of pick him up as he was like stumbling uh, back towards the line of scrimmage or even really kind of back to the huddle after that hit. Who was who actually hit him? Was it Matt Milano that hit him? Yeah, it was Milano that like pushed him. Yeah, so 
it just seemed like to me he looked like he was dazed to say the least. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, look, I mean, I played high school football, you know, back in the day, and I can remember one play in particular where I had a concussion. And the best way that I could describe it is, uh, actually, you know what? Let me just dive into exactly what happened so you guys get a better understanding where I'm coming from. I remember I'm coming out of my three-point stance after the ball is snapped. I'm playing on defense, and my helmet goes up against the center's uh, sh shoulder pad plate, basically like right here. Everything goes black. like, And it wasn't like a hard hit. It was just the way that my helmet went into his chest. Everything went black for like a second. And then, you know, I mean, I kind of like, it's not like I got knocked out or anything like that. But for a second, you know, everything went black. And then... The, the, I mean, the play kept going and I followed it a little bit, but I was I was definitely dazed from it. And then after that, because I was still in the game, I still stayed in. It wasn't to a point where I needed to get off the field and basically get looked at. Everything was running at like three-quarter speed for me. Everything was a little bit slowed down compared to uh, the pace of the game uh, before that point. And I had a little bit of a headache after the game. So I ended up staying up pretty late that night just because... You know, if you have a concussion, usually you know, the best thing you could do is you know, try to stay up as long as you can. Uh, typically, you don't want to go to sleep really quickly after you sustain a concussion. Um, it's just kind of usually what comes with the territory with it. But, you know, when it comes to what happened with Tua, it looked like he had a concussion to me. So, when it comes to the concussion protocol itself, I, I think they're basically of the mindset of if he can't speak, like if he can't talk in an intelligent fashion, then at that point, you take him out of the game. But, I mean, I'll say this. They felt confident enough to put him back in the game. But at what at what level? You know, at what level was that protocol uh, exercised? Because I, I, we pretty much everybody here could pretty much agree that it looked like he was out on his feet. So, you know, maybe uh, maybe you could look at the way that Miami handled that concussion protocol and they were a little bit slick with it. Mm -hmm. But I will say this, you know, when it comes to being a player themselves, they want to be out there on the field. And granted, if it comes at the expense of, you know, putting, you know, their health on the line, despite whatever it is, if it's a concussion, they'll play through it. You know, that just kind of comes with the territory. But yeah, I think some questions could definitely be raised about how, Miami's medical staff handled that concussion protocol because it seemed relatively quick as far as I'm concerned to put him back on the field. But I mean, to, to his credit, I mean, he played well enough for them to win. So I don't, I don't know what's going to happen, you know, for the next couple of days or so, if he's going to get, you know, tested with the concussion protocol or whatnot, but overall, I think there's definitely some questions with how Miami handled that. There's definitely that. Yeah. Definitely a little suspect, but neither here nor there. We're not going to go out there and put any conspiracy theories out into the no. world. So we're just going to kind of take this and move it along to the next topic. We had another big game, obviously, the Rodgers versus Brady showdown for the fifth time. And it ends in a relatively not boring game, but a definite defensive showdown, which is what Kyle and I had predicted because both defenses are obviously a lot better than the offenses at this point in the season. So, you know, uh, Green Bay goes out and they win a close one, 14 to 12. It's as close as you can get. Personally, I don't remember a game ever ending with 12 being the outcome, but here we are. Uh, so, Kyle, I'm going to send this one over your way because, you know, obviously Tom Brady is your boy. Uh, you know, why do you think 
the Bucks struggled so hard. And, you know, what do you think about Green Bay coming out on top with this close victory? Well, I mean, when it comes to the Bucs, uh, you could definitely tell that injuries, uh, Mike Evans' suspension definitely played against them in this game against the Packers. Only putting up 12 points is clearly an indication of that. But some other things I got to bring up here is the Bucks' offensive line is extremely weak. And, you know, the receivers that they had at their disposal against Green Bay on Sunday, they were weak. Russell Gage, Rashad Perriman. I will say that Cameron Bray had a solid day. But outside of that, it was a relatively weak performance from the rest of the receivers and the rest of the targets that Tom could go to. Personally, you know, watching the game, I thought Tom Brady played fine. Even at 45 years old, people will go out there and say, well, the Bucs only scored 12 points. You know, that's indicative of like Tom Brady's decline. I don't see that. This was just a consequence of not having the requisite pieces to be able to execute at a high level for the offense. And when you tie in the offensive line issues, you get the result that you have against the Packers. So, you know, when it comes to their offense, their offense was definitely hindered by the injuries, by the offensive line issues, by Mike Evans' suspension. But outside of that, I thought the Bucs on the defensive side were phenomenal in that game. You hold Aaron Rodgers in that Packers office to 14 points. Uh, You know, granted, they got off to a slow start, uh, giving up 14 points in the first half. But in the second half, they effectively shut out the Packers and Aaron Rodgers. That offense could not move against Tampa's defense. So Tampa definitely came to play. But, you know, looking at Green Bay here, their defense was stout. There's no other way to put it. Uh, They were able to get effective pressure against Tom. Granted, they weren't able to sack him consistently throughout the game, but they were able to get a couple sacks here and there. And they were able to force the Buccaneers into long third down distances, basically like what I would consider third and 10 and higher. It's just basically setting the Bucks up for a punt if the Bucs were able to convert. And that was essentially the play of the game today. That was essentially the style, just because it seemed like it was a battle for field position, just because both offenses, especially in the second half, just couldn't move their way forward. I mean, granted, you know, the, the Bucs were able to get a touchdown at the end of the fourth quarter, and they had a chance to tie the game at 14 apiece, but they weren't able to cash in on that two-point conversion. And then Green Bay secured the onside kick after, and at that point, it was a wrap. But, I mean, looking at the looking at this game as a whole, it pretty much kind of played out the way that Kevin and I had expected. I really didn't have any confidence for either team to go out there and win this game just because the Bucs had injury issues. The Packers still have chemistry issues on the offensive side of the ball. And that played itself out today for both teams. And I look at it like this way. you know, We're still early in the season. It's only week three. Both teams are still learning uh, their own personnel. They're still learning how to group their personnel packages properly. So what you saw in week three between the Packers and the Bucs, this is not the best version of those individual teams yet. I still think that the Packers could be a better team. I still think that the Buccaneers can be a better team than what both teams currently are right now. I think when both of these teams are at full strength, I think that these teams are still definitely NFC competitive teams. And I think that, you know, if the Bucs play their cards right, they could potentially be a Super Bowl contending team. And I think Green Bay could work themselves into that position. But it just kind of depends on whether or not that they could really lock down the chemistry between Aaron Rodgers and those younger wide receivers that they have at their disposal. To me, the Packers defense is going to be a key emphasis here moving forward until the offense kind of gets it worked out. But overall, a very defensive-minded game. This was a great game if you love defenses. But if when it comes to offense, there was not much of it. Uh, points came in at a premium, and 
the Packers were able to do enough to get by Tampa in this one, and it was really predicated on their defense. Uh, Green Bay's defense played outstanding, and they deserve a lot of credit for that. So that's just kind of how I see this game in totality. Max, what do you think about the game? I mean, it was a total, as Kyle said earlier, it was just defensively an amazing game. Green Bay played some great defense entire game. However, the only thing that I could take away natively for the Bucks is their offense just this whole entire season does not seem like the same offense we've come to know. Like, they're missing a step. Leonard Fournette doesn't look the same. Their receiving core, even when they're out there, with the exception of Godwin, because we really haven't seen him, it doesn't seem the same. They don't have the same push on the offensive line. They lost pieces. I believe they lost Ryan Jensen this offseason. They're just not the same. Tom Brady's, you can see he doesn't have the same arm strength. He's not the same quarterback as he used to be. He's still really good. He's just not the same. I would I would say he's not a top five quarterback. Anymore. But overall, Tampa Bay played pretty bad to a subpar Green Bay team when they have their own offensive issues. That's a bold take, baby brother. Um Definitely a bold take for you to say Tom Brady's not a top five quarterback. I mean, obviously the offense isn't moving. I agree with you completely the way that it once did. But I mean, when you look at it from the topical aspect, it's like I've been saying with the Colts, if you have no offensive line, you're definitely not going to be able to put out consistent offense. Now, when you go out there and you make the point of even when they were out there, especially against Dallas, he wasn't able to do anything because that offensive line pretty much kept him at a complete disadvantage when you go up against an elite pass rusher. Now, I will go out there and say, I knew it was going to be a tight game from start to finish because of the lack of offensive consistency from both teams. And I mean, I got to give a big shout out to Vita Vea. Man, that hit he laid on Aaron Jones for that fumble at the goal line. Bro, a 350-pound man dropping off into coverage. Kudos to Todd Bowles for having the faith that he would be able to cover and get to the goal line within that allotted time frame. He laid the pipe. And I'm not saying that inappropriately. He laid the wood, whatever phrase you want to use. Imagine getting hit by a tow truck at full speed, because that's probably what Jones felt like. Oh, my God. But overall, again, with it being a tight game, with it being the the, the way that it was, uh, I'm not really going to look too far into this and say that Tampa's bad, Green Bay's bad. Both of them are obviously missing key pieces. Sammy Watkins wasn't playing. Um, and obviously Aaron Rodgers is still getting acclimated to an extent with this offense. But we all knew that Tampa's defense was going to be a top-ranked defense. They've had the best rush defense in the league for quite some time. And the freaking Packers weren't really able to move the football on the ground, let alone in the air. Aaron did his thing. No turnovers. But at the end of the day, it came down to a tight, tight, tight window. And you know what I'm saying? It is what it is. Both quarterbacks are obviously going to go down in history as two Hall of Fame elite quarterbacks. It's just a matter of who's going to be able to come out on top. of uh, uh, Excuse me. Who this season is going to be able to come out on top within the two of them? Because obviously it's looking like the NFC North is going to be a whole lot more competitive than people had originally anticipated, except for me and Kyle. But nobody saw the Bears being 2-1 and one at the same time. So that's a whole other narrative that we're going to cover at another date because we can go on. We can go on and on with that. But overall, I'm looking at the NFC South and I'm saying, it may not be a complete rollover. Each team has played competitive football every single week. Now, you know, the Saints fell this week to the Panthers, but the Panthers have been giving teams a headache in terms of not being an easy mow-over team week in and week out. And we all know that the Falcons have been one of the most competitive teams in football in terms of every single game they've been in. So I'm looking at this and I'm saying, I'm not 
going to rush to judgment and say what my brother said and obviously say Tom Brady's out of it or Tom Brady's not a top five quarterback because he's missing so many pieces and because he doesn't have the time to throw. So I'll give him a break. I will also give Aaron Rodgers a break. It is the beginning of the year, but both quarterbacks need to ship up. They need to get that stuff taken care of. And if they don't, it is going to be a very grueling season if both quarterbacks continue to struggle the way that they have been. I want to focus on a point that Max made uh, about Brady's effectiveness. And granted, I think that's something that we kind of have to focus on here. I mean, look, at 45 years old, you would expect to see some sort of drop off in productivity from Tom. To be quite honest with you, I don't see it. I don't see it. What I see is that the offensive line is giving up pressure consistently. And Tom, granted, not the most mobile quarterback in the world. You know, 45 years old, he's never really been speedy to begin with. So that just kind of comes with the territory with him. But when it comes to, you know, just being able to move the ball effectively down the field, he was able to do that pretty well in the second half. Tampa decided to go hurry up in the second half against the Packers defense. And I will say that even though that the Bucks didn't put points on the board, they had the Packers defense on their heels multiple times throughout that second half. That was a great second half adjustment that they made. They just weren't able to cash it in. Uh, to get points on the board. Granted, they were able to get that late fourth quarter touchdown to give them a chance to tie the game. But definitely, Tampa left some opportunities out on the field just because they were they were turning the ball over quite consistently in the second half of the game as well. What I see, it's an issue that not only plagues the Bucks, it plagues other teams like the Bengals. Like when it comes to them, for example, with Cincinnati, Joe Burrow does not look exactly like what he did last year. Joe Burrow has struggled quite tremendously this year and it's not because I think that he's taking a step back in his overall skill set it's that his offensive line can't protect him he got sacked 13 times in the first two weeks of the year now granted Tom isn't getting sacked 13 times in the first two games of the year but the pressure that he's facing from that opposing defensive line it's very consistent Uh, their left guard is a rookie and he's getting bull rushed left and right and you could tell that like that's where the pressure is coming from, and defensive coordinators are making that a point of emphasis. It's like we got to attack Brady's blind side because that's definitely the weakest part of Tampa's line. And if Tampa can't fix that part of their O line moving forward, their offense is going to struggle by and large because of that. And it's not because that Tom has taken a step back; it's largely predicated on their offensive line not holding up their protections properly, and it also has a residual effect. Leonard Fournette will not be able to have the run lanes to run effectively up and down the field because if the offensive line aren't blocking, you know, the D linemen properly, if they aren't getting up to the second level to the linebackers, you know, Leonard Fournette is not going to be as effective. So I think when it comes to Brady, you know, obviously if you're just looking at the totality of the amount of points that they're scoring, yeah, it's not anything like last year. But you have to understand, like when it comes to their offensive line, they are missing key pieces. Ryan Jensen's one of them. Alice Kappa went to Cincinnati. Um, Tristan Wirfs, I believe, is playing right tackle instead of left tackle. So they've had to do some shifting on their offensive line just to be able to put the unit out there um, as the season progresses. But when it comes to Tom being the quarterback that he is, I still believe that he's a top five quarterback. I had him listed as the number one quarterback going into this year just based off the fact that he threw 43 touchdowns through over 5,000 yards, and he's going up against guys that are essentially in the primes of their careers and outproducing them, not just a little bit, but significantly. And I think at this point moving forward, I think it's very easy to say that 
you know, Tom is definitely falling off from what he had last year. And I think there's an element of that just based off of the productivity, just because he's not putting up three or four touchdowns a game like he did last year. But this is largely on the offensive line. The offensive line is struggling and it's having a residual effect on Tom's numbers, Leonard Fournette's numbers, and just not having the requisite pieces to be able to throw to like Chris Godwin, Mike Evans, and Julio Jones. I think it's definitely made a significant impact in a negative fashion with the Bucs as a whole. It's, we all know what Tom can do when everything is prepared, when everything is healthy and everything around him is hunky-dory, to put it kind of in a weird way. But he's also missing one of his most reliable blanket coverage or blanket receivers. Rob Gronkowski's not there. And we all know that that is a big factor in terms of when he's in trouble, you find Gronk. When you need a third down conversion, you find Gronk. When you're limited in your options to throw to like today, you're of course going to get that magnified look of, man, maybe Tom don't got it. And in a lot of instances, I don't believe that it was his fault, whereas there were some drops, maybe some miscommunicated routes. It really depends. I mean, Cole Beasley was signed this week and was elevated from the practice squad yesterday. That goes to show the desperation that Tampa's looking at. And again, I hate defending Tom Brady because at the end of the day, ruined half of my damn adulthood and childhood beating the shit out of the Colts. But that's neither here nor there. Once again, we're looking at this from the wrong perspective. And I think that that's what Kyle was trying to allude to. If Tom has the right pieces surrounding him, I think we're having a completely different conversation. And I think that the Bucks are going to be just fine. So I will let that go because we can go on what ifs pretty much all day. I know that we have a couple more segments to cover. So I mean, Kyle, I'll let you kind of introduce the next one. Yeah. So, I mean, up next, this is going to be a fun one for Kev. Yeah, it is his team. Kev, I think you got to, I think you got to flex the the shoe there a little bit because maybe one of the few times where you actually maybe may be able to flex it. So, you know, definitely celebrate this one for as long as you can. Barely. Uh, but yeah, uh, the Colts definitely provide one of the biggest upsets of the year, uh, beating the Kansas City Chiefs by the score of twenty to seventeen. Uh, it was relatively a defensive battle. Uh, Kansas City did struggle to be able to put points on the board. Seventeen points is their lowest point total of the year so far, but uh, the Colts were able to basically hang in with against the Chiefs the entire day. And I will say this: you know, when it came into the fourth quarter, Matt Ryan was able to provide a game-winning drive for the Colts and really provide one of the biggest upsets of Week Three. So, Kevin, to kick this one to you, how surprised were you with the Colts going on one of the biggest upsets in Week Three by beating the Chiefs? Surprised is an understatement to an extent because I'm looking at this and I'm saying, of course, Matt Ryan had two fumbles. He's had seven fumbles in three games, and that's one of the biggest pieces to panic. Matt Ryan was also sacked five times. Yet again, our offensive line is not playing up to snuff. Uh, Shaquille Barrett wasn't playing. We had a couple of drops. Shaquille Leonard. There was a couple of bad... What's up? Shaquille Leonard. Shaquille Leonard. Wow, Shaquille Barrett. I'm tweaking right now i'm just i'm so confused with emotions because i'm happy we won and i appreciate the correction thank you um i'm happy we won but at the same time i'm genuinely concerned that matt ryan may not make it the rest of the season i will take the drive that he led in the fourth quarter to take the lead with 24 seconds to go jelani woods has been injured most of this year which is why he hasn't really been on the field and he had two touchdowns i mean when you draft a tight end at two six seven two seventy two sixty i I would hope that he is going to be out there and, and, and doing what he needs to do, you know, in the end zone, blocking and, and whatever else have you. But we 
accomplished something that I and a lot of other Colt fans didn't think was possible. And we beat probably one of the best teams in the NFL. The Kansas City Chiefs played one hell of a game. The Kansas City Chiefs were able to get to Matt Ryan. The Kansas City Chiefs were able to shut down effectively Jonathan Taylor, who only had 71 yards rushing. And of course, they were also able to pressure the quarterback to make Matt Ryan feel their presence even when he wasn't sacked. So Pat Mahomes did everything he needed to do outside of that one turnover where Stephon Gilmore was able to get a hand in and Ronnie McLeod was able to intercept it at the end of the game. And I would say that outside of that fake field goal situation, that Kansas City almost played a damn near perfect game. We all know that our rush defense is very, very convincing. Um, Again, one of the better rush defenses this season so far, averaging 2.5 yards per carry this game against Kansas City. They only had 58 yards rushing. And I I believe that they they held Travis Kelsey to 58 yards. Granted, he had a touchdown and he had a two-point conversion. Very questionable, might I add you, because they showed the replay a thousand times and his knee was down before the ball crossed the plane. But we won the game, so I will not be salty. I'm happy that Pittman came back. I'm happy that Pierce came back. And I saw that Naeem Himes was at least incorporated into the offense just a little bit more than he has been recently. And I'm looking at our play calling and I'm saying there were some instances to where we can improve, but like anything else, that's what's got to be done week in and week out, no matter what in the NFL. But as a whole, I will say that Matt Ryan achieved the name Matty Ice for a reason. Matt Ryan is in his high 30s, and there is a reason why he is known as one of the more accurate quarterbacks in the NFL. He had a passer rating of a buck five, so I'm not complaining there. We just got to tighten it up on that offensive line. If there is a possibility that we can give him just another second or second and a half of time, our receivers will find a way to get open, and he will find a way to get them the ball. I'm happy we got the upset. I'm ecstatic to see what the Colts have moving forward, but I'm not going to sugarcoat it. If this offensive line continues, Matt Ryan's not Joe Burrow. He's not 25, 26 years old. There's going to be one hit that he's not going to be able to get up from, and our backup after that is also in his lower 30s or in his 30s in general, Nick Foles. There may be some situation where we might see Sam Ellinger get some meaningful playing time because both quarterbacks in terms of Ryan and Foles, they're not the most mobile in the world. We're going to have to see what happens, but... I'll take the win where I can get it. Very happy with it. And uh, you know what? Go Colts, baby. Max, let's uh let's get your thoughts on the uh the Colts beating the Chiefs in week three. Um, I mean, I'm not the Colts fan. I obviously didn't see it much of the game because I do watch NFL Red Zone, but the little bits I saw, the Colts offense did get off to a slow start, but I believe they got a muff part a muff punt to start. And off that muff punt, that gave them like the uh, a surge of energy or something, and that offense then turned it on a little bit. As he said, Jelani Woods did go off, but Kansas City Chiefs just didn't play as good as they wanted to. But Pat continues to keep it rolling, prove that he's one of the best quarterbacks, and the coaches outplayed them today. That's it. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to me with the Colts, um, I mostly just saw the highlights of this game. But Kev, just um. Honestly, just point out anything where I might take a misstep here for I need a little bit more clarification from you. Uh, Just let me know. Uh, When I look back at this game, just based off of the highlights that I've seen, uh, it seemed to me that the Colts defense looked pretty stout. I mean, to hold the Chiefs to only 17 points, uh, it's quite a feat. It's their lowest point total offensively the entire year. And it's pretty much like a night and day difference from what the Chiefs looked like in week one, where they just beat the brakes off of the Cardinals by putting up over 40 points, and I think Pat threw five touchdowns in that game. So for the Colts' defense to hold the Chiefs' offense, and Patrick Mahomes to only 262 yards passing, Kev, I don't know about you, 
I think you'll take that any day of the week. Am I wrong? Any day. So not only that, I will say, Kev, I, I think you were right about Matt Ryan a little bit. Didn't necessarily look his best uh, early in the game. Uh, it was just indicative of, I think, the Colts in the first half. They only put up 10 points in the first half. Uh, they were able to get some offensive drives, but not really anything major in consistency. Uh, to me, obviously, you know, the drive that comes most in the mind here was that game-winning drive uh, where Matt Ryan was able to throw essentially the game-winning touchdown with, okay, was it under a minute left to go, if I remember correctly? It, it was about, uh, I believe it was under two minutes. Okay, so, you know, it was kind of funny because, like, as I was, you know, I wasn't watching the game as it was going on. I was kind of being updated by Kevin's tweets. Uh, Kev, when, when he gets on his uh, Twitter game, uh, he, he definitely lets Twitter know about what's going on with the Colts, and he definitely kept me in tune with that. But overall, I got to say, you know, for Matt Ryan at the seasoned age that he's at, I think he did enough to get by the Chiefs in this one. Granted, um, you know, beating the Chiefs is quite a feat in and of itself. And granted, it wasn't that the Chiefs, you know, blew the doors off the Colts here. I thought that the Chiefs would have probably won this game by 10, maybe 14 points when it was all said and done. Uh, but for the Colts to go out and beat the Chiefs in this manner, I got to give them a lot of credit. I didn't really think it was quite possible just based on how they looked last week against the Jags. I don't know what it is with the Colts and the Jags where the Colts just literally look like a double double A or triple A football team when they play against Jacksonville in Jacksonville. Just it doesn't work out for them that way. But they were able to get it bad together quite effectively against one of the better teams in the NFL. And I got to give them respect for that. So I don't know what's going to happen with the Colts moving forward. Um, when you look at the rest of the AFC South, it looks like the Jags are the number one team in that division right now. But after that, it's kind of a toss up and uh, the Colts could make things a little bit interesting if they can, build some things off of this win, uh, especially defensively because their defense played quite tremendously in that game against Patrick Mahomes and that Chiefs offense. And if that's one thing that I can point to, uh, it's a good one because they definitely need their defense to step up just with the lack of receivers that the Colts have at their disposal on the offensive side of the ball. So good win for the Colts, and um, they get to a 1-1-1 record. So uh, they got ones across the board. So that's just kind of how I see it. Yeah, that's 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 not something I really want to brag about. I'll make one final point here, and I will say that Gus Bradley adjusted perfectly. And for those of you that are unaware of who that is, that's our defensive coordinator. Kansas City, we all know over the course of Patrick Mahomes' career, thrive on the big plays. Whether that's up the seam, whether that's the fly route, whether that's the post corner, it's just they they like playing 15, 20, 25 yards down the field at a clip. Gus made sure that he had everything in the middle of the field, everything was in front of him, and there were no breakout standout plays. So I will give him kudos. Isaiah Rogers, our number two corner on the depth chart, didn't really get a lot of playing time in the last couple of games. He was on the field for a significant amount of time, and I thought that that was another big, impactful play to go out there and at least hinder Patrick Mahomes' ability to throw receivers open because he is quick. He does have the recover capability. He's a little on the longer side. So overall, again, the defense of the Colts has never been the question. The pass defense was in the first two weeks because obviously at the end of the day, Trevor Lawrence carved us up. And the week before that, Davis Mills absolutely made us look like pieces of shit. So I'm not going to sit here and pretend like there weren't bad games. But when you hold arguably the best quarterback in the league to 17 points, that's pretty big W, like Kyle said. So when we get, obviously, Shaquille Leonard, let me get this right, as the Colts fan, I guess my dog woke up, 
Um, we get Shaquille Leonard back into this game, and he's hopefully able to force some turnovers and be the maniac that we know he can be, I think this defense is going to take that next step up. What I need to see is a big, big emphasis on a pass rush. We traded for Ngakwe. He has one sack. Pay, two sacks. DeForest Buckner, zero sacks. There needs to be an intensified push to get to the quarterback. We had five quarterback hits on Pat Mahomes, and when he's flustered and rushed, we've seen it, especially in the Super Bowl, he doesn't do too well. But we need to see a lot more of what we saw today, and that's got to continue throughout the rest of the season. Because if not, the combination of no sacks and obviously the, our offensive line being the equivalent of poop, um, we're not going to do very good, and Jacksonville may very well run away with this damn division. Yeah, and who would have thought that Jacksonville would be the team to beat after three weeks into the NFL just because I didn't really see it. So I, I guess I got to give Jacksonville a little bit of credit, but I will say that you know the Colts have been very up and down, to say the least, just with the games that they've had. You know, One tie to start off the year, then getting smoked by Jacksonville in week two. And then going out there and be, beating one of the best teams in the NFL in week three. I mean, I got to give them credit for that. You know, they played up to snuff today. But, you know, I with them, Kev, you know, you could tell me if I'm wrong here. I think you're just going to have to judge them week by week here. Because Sucks, but yeah. I, I don't, I, we said it time and time again, you don't have a lot of trust in Frank just be, based off of his play calling history at this point. Do you want me to just leave I it made at that? It, I, made, I made it without mentioning him for a reason. Because, I listen, I don't have blood pressure medication, but I might have to start taking it if we... St- I see his face on the sideline. I swear, if Isabel's dad was here, he'd be like, you don't like that, man. I don't. My father knows I don't. My brother knows I hate him. So it's... I, I, Frank Reich I, I, is the epitome of my blood pressure and anxiety. Just make sure that you're able to make the distinction between him as a person and then him as, like, a football coach. Like... It's nothing personal, I guess. The it's guy. it's the play calling. He's a great individual, bro. People across the league love him. He's a great head coach. He's a great leader. Great motivational speaker. It is the play calling. That's it. And if you're going to continue to be hesitant or resistant of passing that responsibility off to the offensive coordinator, I'm going to give you a lot of shit for it. Because if you're that adamant about it, call the right plays. You cannot throw a. <laughs> You cannot call a bootleg with a quarterback that is basically the equivalent of my grandfather, who is 72 years old and just is not mobile whatsoever. And in a fourth and two, I'm not doing this. We will move on to the next one. Wait, 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 I, this is what I'm saying. You brought this up. I, this, is, this is your fault. Well, we had to bring up the Colts and the Chiefs, bro. Like, come on now. Like, No, this Frank. Is... I'm talking about Frank. I'm oh, about Frank. well. I have to mention him because he's a part of the team, dude. Like, granted, I know you don't like the guy as like a play caller, but I mean, they did enough, right? They did enough. See, see, Max, Max, look what I got to deal with here. Every time I I bring up the Colts, every look what I got to deal with. Look, look what you have to deal with. Oh, because you don't like giving me shit every week in and week out when my teams actually come out on top. Well, Max, the thing that I always tell Kev is like, I don't really even have to make my points. The Colts kind of do it themselves. Because, I I mean, when was the last time the Colts beat the Jags in Jacksonville? What was it, like 2014, 2013, sometime around there? Um, I mean, it, it's been quite some time. And it's it, I don't ha- even have to make these points. They just kind of go out there and prove it to themselves that they can't do it. But, I mean, today, I, I can't really dunk on them that hard. Uh, they did what they needed to do against Patrick Mahomes. And I don't think a lot of people had it penned in that the Chiefs would fall to the Colts. So... Yeah, you know, I'll give I'll give some credit to to Casey. I mean, not to Casey, to Indy there, 
But um, Max, is there anything that you wanted to bring up about the uh, the Chiefs and the Colts game before we move on? No, Pat still on his on his. I don't know. Um, no, it was pretty much a good game. Um, the Colts offense did what they needed to do. That's it. Fair enough. So. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. With that said, we're going to transition to a NFC East battle that took place on Sunday. And uh, it was quite a game from the Philadelphia Eagles playing against the Washington Commanders. Uh, the Eagles had a pretty convincing win against Washington by the score of 24-8. to uh, This was the first time that Carson Wentz returned uh, to play his former team in the Eagles. And safe to say he did not have his best performance against his former team. Uh, by only putting up eight points as a unit, it was kind of sad to say the least. I think one of one of their scoring possessions was actually a safety that took place in the second half. So you could definitely say that uh, the commanders did not necessarily have the best offensive performance in this game. But one of the main takeaways, and this is something that I think Kevin's going to probably dive into, is Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts has been phenomenal the first couple of weeks. He follows it up once again in week three by throwing for 340 yards, throws three touchdowns, Devontae Smith had a hell of a day with eight catches, almost 170 yards receiving, and a touchdown to boot as well. Uh, the Eagles are sitting at a 3-0 record. They are at the top of the NFC East right now. We'll kind of see what happens between the Cowboys and the Giants on that Monday night game. But with that said, you know the Eagles are in prime position right now, kind of going into the last week of September. And they're, I will say, they are one of the better teams in the NFL right now. That's kind of putting it mildly. So, Kevin, to kick this one to you, how impressed were you by the Eagles' performance in Washington in Week 3? I'm going to make a bold-ass prediction, and I don't even care. The Eagles are the best team in the NFL. And I know my brother's going to look at me sideways. I know he's going to say that's crazy because the Dolphins are 3-0-2 and, and yada, yada, yada. The Eagles let up 35 points to the Dolphins in Week 1. Excuse me, to the Lions in Week 1. Since then, they have legitimately shut down, effectively, Justin Jefferson and Kirk Cousins. They shut down the emergence of what Carson Wentz and everybody else was saying, oh, Carson Wentz wasn't the problem in Indianapolis, blah, 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 blah. When Carson played an elite defense, he was basically null. Not, a, not even close to effective, and it was a lot of garbage time yards, garbage time points. 211 yards, basically all of it came in the fourth quarter because that was the only time they scored eight points. He was sacked nine times. They had two fumbles. They had two strip sacks, and one of them they lost. The Philadelphia Eagles played all facets of the game perfectly. Special teams went great. Offense went great. Defense was locked down. Now, obviously, the Washington Commanders, I will give them credit, the second half, they did not allow any points. But they weren't able to capitalize on the offensive side. And why is that? That is because the Philadelphia Eagles single-handedly embarrassed the living shit out of Carson Wentz. I do not want to hear another person tell me that Carson Wentz is that guy. Carson Wentz is better than Matt Ryan. Blah, blah, blah. At least Matt Ryan was able to have positive passing yards in the first half of the game. At one point, Washington had negative 16 yards in terms of passing yards because Carson was sacked so many times. I don't want to hear it. Philadelphia plays 
every single down as hard as they possibly can. And I'm not saying that Miami does not, but I'm going to trust Jalen Hurts more than Tua Tungavailoa for the sheer fact, one, Tua's got to stay healthy. Two, Jalen Hurts is mobile. He's able to escape a lot of pressures. He's able to escape and use his legs to gain yards as well as throw the ball down the field and extend the play. And at the end of the day, I think that the combination of James Bradbury, Darius Slay, and that secondary, along with that front four, is the best defense in the league. I understand that they had a bad first game. A lot of teams had a bad first game. But when you capitalize in all phases, including Jalen Hurts taking a massive leap from what he was last year to this season, it's not close. Two back-to-back 300-yard passing games were not something that anybody would have anticipated, especially in Philadelphia, because they were the quick ones to say, if he has a struggling season, he's got to go. Because we all know that those fans are harsh. Philly did what they needed to do, offensively, defensively, and on special teams. Nick Sirianni looks like a genius. Gannon looks like a genius on the defensive side, and this is only going to get better. I will say today that they weren't able to run the ball effectively because they only had 72 yards on the ground with 2.4 yards per carry. But when you have Jalen Hurts at the helm, making beautiful passes, throwing receivers open, and making plays with his legs, there's not much you can argue. Philly is that team. Right now, they are the best team in the NFL, and I'm I'm not getting off that plateau. Max, do you... Do you think that Kev's right to say that the Eagles are the best team in the NFL right now? 100%. I would not disagree. I'm, I mean, I am a Miami fan, but I do love Jalen Hurts. That team is great. They had one of the most underrated offseasons this year. They went out, got uh, Hassan Reddick. They got Kaiser White. They signed James Bradbury. They also got Chris Reed from the Colts, an offensive lineman, who I believe played over 200 snaps and gave up zero sacks. Great offensive lineman. And then they, I believe they also got Chauncey Gardner-Johnson late in free agency to help that defense. So now that's a stout defense. They already had an amazing front seven last year. Now you add Hassan Reddick and Kaiser White to that. That's even better. Plus you have uh, Slay on the outside. Now you add James Bradbury. That's even better. And the Eagles were before the season started. They were my pick to win the to win the NFC North, or I mean the NFC East. And I still believe that I would I wouldn't mind having them as the number one ranked team in the NFL right now. Um, yeah. And then oh, how do I forget? Their biggest addition was adding AJ Brown. AJ Brown was huge, and then you have Nicobe Dean falling to them in the draft, which was another huge deal for them. And then you have Jordan Davis, who's just Jordan Davis is huge. So that team is easily one of the best football teams, if not the best football team for weeks to come. Kev, is it safe to say that if you look back at this game against the Commanders with the Eagles performance, that they essentially won this game in the second quarter? 100%. They pulled away. They were able to score and score and score and move the ball downfield. And it wasn't dump plays. These were big chunk yards plays. Devontae Smith was able to sincerely get open what seemed to be at will. And Jalen Hurts was was putting the ball exactly where he needed to be. And Max, I will give you a correction. Chris Reed actually ended up going to Minnesota. He's not on the Eagles. Oh. No, it's all good. It happens, baby. It's all good. Dude, I called my best player the wrong name. (laughs) It happens. Don't worry. Don't worry, Max. We make mistakes just like everybody else does. Um, But when it comes to the Eagles, I mean, I understand uh, the hype around Philly right now. 
I don't know if I would go as far to say they're they're the best team, but they you could definitely make a case that they're the number one team. I don't think it's as definite though. Um, I still believe that the Bills are a better team than the Eagles, even though that the Bills lost to the Dolphins in Week Three. I'll, it's I'll, those injuries, I, man. I, you, it's hard to recoup when, that. When it comes to the Bills defense and the amount of injuries that they have, that is a, I would say that is a definite point of concern with them moving forward. Uh, the Eagles defense has been stout to say the least, but I still think that Tampa has a better defense than them. I think Buffalo still has a better defense than them. And I do, but I do believe that the Eagles have a top three to top five defense in the NFL. I think that is a fair point to make at this point. Kev, this is just m- me here. I have to see the Eagles do this long-term. Three weeks Agreed. is a little bit too premature for me to just hop on this bandwagon and say that this team is going to take it all the way to the Super Bowl. I mean, granted, right I now... I didn't say that they were. Right, I didn't right, say that they were. Right now... You can make a case that they are the best team in the NFL. Right. But there I think there still are some question marks with this team. And it's not just because they're not winning. I mean, they are going out there and getting dubs. There is a lack of consistency on the offensive side of the ball that is Agreed. a little bit troubling. And it's not the fact that they can't move the ball down the field. They could do that quite effectively. It's just finishing off drives. I mean, granted, we could look back to the, the Monday night performance that they had against the Vikings. They were dominant in that game but you could tell that there were points that they left on the board on the offensive side of the ball just because drives would stall out and that yeah and that happens and but at this point though i would say that the eagles have definitely taken a major leap forward than where they were this time last year like this time last year they were they were kind of down in the dumps they were a, a team that was kind of struggling didn't really have an identity nick sirianni's play calling was being questioned but Ever since like the midpoint of last year, they've really kind of turned it on. Granted, it didn't really work itself out in that NFC wild card round against the Bucks, but you know, you're playing against Tampa on the road against Tom Brady. That's not necessarily the the easiest task at hand there. But overall, I mean, I gotta say, at this point, you know, the Eagles are definitely a top three team in the NFL, just for me personally. So the main thing with me is I just have to see the Eagles do this consistently. I just don't have confidence that they are, without a doubt, like they're the runaway favorite as the number one team right now. I still believe that there are better teams than them. I still think that Buffalo is a better team than them. But after that, you could make a case that the Eagles are like two or three. So I'd even you know possibly throw the Chiefs in there as like a top two team, just even though they lost to the Colts. I, I still think if you were to put the matchup between the, the Colts, I mean, not the Colts, the Chiefs and the Eagles, I'd probably still favor the Chiefs simply just because of Pat. So I think that Pat would still have the edge over Zach, or not over Zach, over Jalen. But overall, you know, I, I was definitely impressed with what the Eagles did in week three. Um, definitely left some points on the board, but overall, uh, they're, they're a team on the rise for sure. There, there's no doubt about that. It's just, for me, I got to see them stretch this out into October and then going into November before I'm like fully convinced. A hundred percent. Not one time that I say, I just want to let everybody know, I wasn't saying they're going to win the Super Bowl. I said that they're the best team right now at the end of week three or the closing of week three because we still have the game going on now. It's Sunday night and tomorrow's game on, on Monday. I'm just saying from an overall standpoint, everybody's talking about Buffalo, Kansas City, who both lost and we all know that. Both of those games were close. Yep. You lost to a team in terms of Kansas City with an older quarterback, battered and bruised offensive line, and inability to run the football because your defense was stout. That leaves me in question. The week before that, you seem to have a hard time with L.A., 
LA is one and two right now. The Eagles, since having that struggle in week one against Detroit, they have been a team on a mission. They are a completely different team. They have essentially locked down one of the best receivers in the game in Justin Jefferson. They made Kirk Cousins look like a a bum, basically. And then you go out and the hottest quarterback in the league, Carson Wentz, is coming back. When you go and you play shitty teams the first two weeks and you carve them up, suddenly I forgot that makes you the best quarterback in football. Wake up, come back down to reality. There's a reason why your decision-making is in question. There's a reason why you've been traded two times in the last year. That is because you don't make effective decisions. You don't know when to take sacks. You don't know when to check the ball down. And there were a lot of instances where he tried to make plays that he didn't need to. You didn't make plays until they legitimately played prevent defense at that point. I'm not going to give Carson Wentz any slack, and I'm not going to give any of the people that were in our comments on TikTok and on YouTube to say that Matt Ryan sucks. That's not the case. He struggled. Carson Wentz is just as bad, if not worse, because he has the mobility that Matt Ryan does not. He has a better receiving core that Matt Ryan does not, and he has a better coaching staff that Matt Ryan does not. We won a game. We effectively beat one of the best teams in football, and that's not the case when it comes to Carson Wentz. I'm not giving anybody a pass in Washington, and I'm damn sure not giving anybody any slack anywhere else. I guarantee you, Philadelphia is going to give a shit ton of people a whole lot of surprises moving forward throughout the season. Well, for me, I'll just kind of put it like this. Kev, I'm looking at the schedule here for the Eagles. Next week, they play the Jaguars, which actually might actually be a decent game. A good game. That'll be a fun game. After after that, they play the Cardinals. Then, they got to play the Cowboys, Steelers, the Texans, the Commanders, the Colts, and then probably the next toughest game that they have after that is against the Packers. They don't play the Packers until November 27th. They got pretty much a month and a half stretch where they could pretty much, I'm not going to say cakewalk through the schedule. Definitely not. But they, but they have some games where they could definitely favorable. take advantage here. So, mm-hmm. and honestly, they might be in a very good position by the end of the year looking at this schedule because the only tough games I see from them moving forward, maybe the Colts might be an interesting one. Um, in the middle of November. Dallas one is going to be a tough one. It always is. Yeah. And Dak might be back. If Der- if Jerry Jones gets his wish, that could be Dak's first game back. It could be. But, that I mean, I'm kind of looking towards the end of the year. You know, you have some divisional matchups. Uh, you got the Saints. You have the Giants. You have the Bears. But there's some games that the Eagles can win here. It's, For sure. I, honestly, I think this Jaguars game might be their toughest game until probably October with the Cowboys. But then... I like the Eagles against the Steelers uh, around Halloween. I, I favor them against the Texans on November 3rd. That'll be a Thursday night game, so they'll only have about two or three days of rest there. But then they can play the Commanders, then, then the Colts, and then the Packers is going to be right around Thanksgiving. I mean, looking at the schedule right now, there's a very good chance that the Eagles could be sitting at like a 7-1 and record by that point, or like 8-1, and just depending on what week they play the Packers in. But overall, I, I think that the way that this team is assembled right now and with how they've been playing on the offensive side of the ball, but really it's been their defense that's really been the standout team as far as their unit as a whole that has really been quite impressive. So I definitely think that if they can continue both the offensive capabilities that they've had so far in their output and you pair that with their defense, I think that they're in a very advantageous situation moving forward. Without a doubt. 
And, you know, obviously we're going to move into the next segue because I kind of went on a little bit of a rant there. I apologize. Usually it's a Colts rant, but, you know, Philly is basically my second team at this point. So uh, we're going to talk about a, a shocking victory in week three. And that was the Jacksonville Jaguars going up into L.A. and slapping Justin Herbert and the Chargers in SoFi by the score of 38 to 10. So, Kyle. Obviously, this is probably one of the biggest shocks right next to, you know, New York, excuse me, the Colts coming out on top uh, against the Chiefs. What are your thoughts and takeaways from Jacksonville going up into SoFi and pretty much (laughs) slapping the shit out of the Chargers? Well, I have to say that overall, the Jags may be a team that we have to kind of take serious moving forward. I'm not saying that they're going to go all the way to the Super Bowl and this is a team that's like an instant Super Bowl contender. I'm not going to go that far. But I have to say that... What the Jaguars did to the Chargers in week three was damn near felonious as far as I'm concerned. This was a beatdown of epic epic proportions. Uh, To go on the road and beat the Chargers by four touchdowns uh, was not a result that I had in mind. Granted, Justin Herbert uh, is probably playing with at least three or four broken ribs. Uh, Had that injury in that uh, Thursday night matchup when they played against the Chiefs last week. And you can definitely tell that. Uh, That was a point of emphasis when it came to his play. He still looks uncomfortable with that. Granted, he was able to throw the ball uh, down the field a couple times, but you could just tell that offense just was not in rhythm. In a large part, that was just based off of the fact that the Jags defense was playing their part. They were able to effectively lock down that Chargers offense. When you hold Justin Herbert and that Chargers offense, which is very explosive when they're at full capacity and just flying on all cylinders, you you can make a case that the Chargers have like a top five offense in the league. And what the Jags did defensively was quite impressive. So I got to give Jacksonville a boatload of credit for that, uh, for starters. But to me, I got to give credit to Trevor. I thought Trevor played a phenomenal game. And granted, you know, Trevor got a lot of slack last year for being an inconsistent quarterback in his rookie year. But it definitely seems like he has turned a corner so far. And I would say that the Jags, by and large, are on a pretty good kick here right now. You know, they're sitting at a 2-1 record. They are number one in the NFC East at this current moment in time. And uh, actually, I should say AFC AFC, South. South. Yeah, I got that one wrong. Thank you for the correction. Overall, I think, you know, when it's all said and done, you know, we'll see what happens with the Jags. The Jags are a solid team uh, at this point of the year. But, you know, we have to see what happens in October. We have to see what happens in November. And time will tell with that. When it comes to the Chargers, uh, this is, you know, second loss in a row. They're sitting at a one and two record. They're definitely... Uh, in a little bit of a slump. Granted, you know, I, I think it had Justin not got hurt in that Chiefs matchup in week two, uh, this would have been a differently played out game for them. But uh, the, the Jags really showed out. And not only that, I thought James Robinson was an absolute beast on the ground. I had a touchdown, I believe it was like a 50 yard scamper where he ended up just outrunning everybody in the Chargers defense. And not only that, I thought Zay Jones, Christian Kirk, and Marvin Jones all had productive days on the Jags offense. So to me, when it comes to the Jaguars, it just depends on whether or not that they can maintain this consistency moving forward. And in recent memory, that's been a checkered point to say the least, just because the Jags have been one of the more mediocre teams the last couple of years. But I have to say with this performance alone, uh, they definitely turned some heads. They definitely turned mine and uh, we'll see if they can improve on this and even, you know, use this as momentum going into essentially the last week of September going into October. Yeah, it was a, a great showing. Obviously, it's a division opponent, so it's somebody I don't want to necessarily support. But at the end of the day, um, 
Jacksonville turned a lot of heads. And Max, I'm going to swing it over to you because we all know what I think about the Jaguars, but I'll kind of give my analysis in just a few moments. Uh, what do you think about Jacksonville going out there and upsetting L.A.? I mean, I will say briefly that um, Jacksonville has been showing for the season that their uh, potential for a wild card team this year, but we have to see obviously more from them. Consistency is huge. And on the Chargers side of the ball, the Chargers are a bit of a letdown this year. We thought so far, we thought that with the addition of J.C. Jackson and Khalil Mack, that this team would be take another step. And especially with the departure of Tyreek Hill, their division getting better, we thought Justin Herbert would take the next step too. But as Kyle mentioned, the injury to Herbert last week may cause some concern, and especially with them losing their star left tackle and Rashawn Slater earlier in this game. That was also a big thing. But for Jacksonville, they are showing they do have the potential to to be a wild card team in this league, but we still have to see a lot more for them. This is starting to be the Trevor Lawrence we expected to see, but it's still too early in the season to tell. I couldn't agree more, honestly. And I'm going to make a big shout out here. James Robinson is one of the most effective running backs that Jacksonville has seen pretty much since Maurice Jones drew. And he is recovering, obviously, or recovered from an Achilles injury last season. People were doubting him and saying it's Travis Etienne's time. It's Etienne's you know, uh, job to lose. Week in and week out, James has been playing damn near perfect football and doing everything that he can to keep his job. Now, he's not the most glamorous. He's not the most flashy. He's not the fastest, not the sh- most shifty, but he gets it done. 100 yards on the ground today. Obviously, the bulk of it coming from one breakaway. Uh, but at the end of the day, that's because he has the ability to create that separation, put his shoulder, and do what he needs to do as a running back to make sure that his job is secure. I'm tired of the ETN nonsense. That was a horrible draft pick by Urban Meyer, and now Jackson was going to be stuck with it because I agree that ETN has the potential to be a good running back, but when you're splitting carries with two different styles, one is downhill, one is a little bit more on the shifty receiving end, it's not really going to mesh well. And, you know, people would say that that's a different story in Cleveland because you have Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb. But they have a little bit more of a chemistry. They have a little bit more of a, a system with Kevin, uh, uh, Kevin Stefanski. I just can't go out there and defend the drafting of ETN. We all thought it was going to be crazy, and then he got hurt in training camp last year. We all thought that with him back and obviously Robinson back, it was going to be a dynamic one-two punch. It just looks like Robinson is creating a lot of a distance, a lot more distance in that competition of a backfield. And Trevor Lawrence is playing at an MVP level. I will go out there and say he has taken that next step with Doug Peterson, who we all know is a Hall of Fame potential coach. We all know that what he was able to do with Nick Foles and Carson Wentz in Philadelphia before the nonsense that started at the other half, uh, at the end of his tenure with Philadelphia, that he is capable of molding younger quarterbacks and making them play to the best of their abilities. So I'm going to go out there and say Trevor Lawrence, I agree with my brother, is going to lead Jacksonville at least to a potential wildcard spot, maybe even a division title if uh, Indianapolis doesn't get their act together and Tennessee continues to be inconsistent. We all know what Houston's going to be, but that's neither here nor there. You have to give them credit. They're playing at such an efficient level. They've scored over 60 points in the last two weeks combined. Their defense legitimately has only given up 10 points in the last two weeks. It is something to be noticed, something to be respected, and I think that this organization as a whole had a really bad narrative and taste in a lot of people's mouths because of what happened with Urban Meyer. 
Doug Peterson needs to be given a lot of credit. He's come into this system knowing everything he's had and all the things that they had going on last year. He's canceled the negativity, and he is highlighting a lot of strengths with Trevor Lawrence, which happens to be accuracy, and, of course, his ability to kind of continue to play with his slight mobility. And, of course, Trevor Lawrence overall, we all know what he was coming out of high school and in Clemson, probably the greatest high school quarterback prospect and obviously probably the greatest collegiate quarterback in terms of all the mechanics he has at his disposal. It's all just finally coming out and showing in the NFL that he can be one of the best quarterbacks in the league, and maybe in the future, he could end up being that guy. Could be. Could be. It's just the main thing with me is just consistency. Uh, but I, w- I will say, uh, definitely the better quarterback in uh, week three against Justin. Credit to Justin dealing with an injury, still dealing with those crack ribs. I think he has four of them, if I'm not mistaken. So obviously, I think that definitely played a factor. Um, with the Jags um, defensive performance, because I think, I think I'd just been at a hundred percent health in this one. I think this would have been a slightly different result. I think the Chargers offense would have been a little bit more potent, but no, give the Jags a lot of credit in this one. Uh, defensively, they were able to shut down that Chargers offense pretty effectively. And then Trevor Lawrence was pretty effective. 28 to 39, 260 yards passing and three touchdowns. I mean, that's a pretty productive day as far as I'm concerned. So I'll take that. Damn right. I'll, I'll, I, I would take that. So he's definitely, to me, he's definitely made a turn based off of what he did last year. So if this is the type of Trevor Lawrence that we're going to see moving forward, I think the Jacks will be in a good place. It's just, Agreed. you know, still a young team by and large. And I, 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 But I will say, though, that is something that the Jacks can hold their head on. Because, you know, if those guys are relatively young, those guys have a lot of room to be able to, to grow and develop into their roles and, I think by and large that, that that could be really a winning formula for them in, in the long term. But, you know, for right now, they're they're in a good spot. You know, they're top spot in the AFC South. And we'll see whether or not that they can continue that into the future. But yeah, um and I, I, I will give one more shout out to Jacksonville. Rush defense. Yeah. They res, res, respectfully, they've been able to shut down a pretty solid uh, you know, back to back week in terms of facing off against Austin Eckler and last week against Jonathan Taylor, they held the Chargers to 26 rushing yards, 2.2 yards per carry. Mm -hmm. They need to be respected because the Colts are effectively one of the best running teams in the league. And then you have Austin Eckler, who is a very effective dual threat uh, running back in this league, not only on the fantasy aspect of things, but somebody that can run between the tackles, make somebody miss, and then, of course, go out there and catch a ball for 50, 60 yards and take that downfield to the house. Um... Jacksonville's defense is playing very, very, very effective, and I need people to understand, as as hurt as Justin was, throwing the ball 45 times because they were down 16 points so early on before you know the Chargers went on and scored seven points in the second quarter, I just want to say Jacksonville's doing it on all ends. As much as Herbert was hurt and maybe that affected his accuracy, that doesn't take away from Jacksonville's defense making sure that they made their presence known and felt in between the trenches. And of course, at the end of the day, getting to Herbert however they could. It's like we said last week. You Listen, if you can win in the trenches, you can win games. Everything is at the line of scrimmage, whether you're in the offense or the defensive side of the ball. If you win in the trenches, more than likely, it's going to lead to greater results throughout the game and usually ends up in a dub. So overall, no. I, I think you are I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head there. Uh, Max, is there anything that you wanted to mention before we uh, move on to the next segment? Okay. 
Uh, with that said, uh, we're going to, we have one thing just to kind of basically make mention of here. Um, we're just going to do a quick roundup of the other week's three scores. Uh, this will be relatively quick, so we'll just kind of knock these out just based off of the games that we haven't talked about. Um, we'll start with the Bengals and the Jets. Uh, the Bengals get their first win of the season. Joe Burrow looked like he returned to his former self that we saw last year. Uh, the Bengals won by the score of 27-12. to 12. Uh, The Bengals were quite convincing in this win, and it's definitely a step in the right direction for them. They are no longer uh, in the winless column anymore. They finally got a win on the board, and we'll see whether or not they can continue that moving forward into October. After that, we got the Titans and the Raiders. The Titans came out with a very close win over the Raiders, winning by the score of 24-22. to Seems like the Titans have stabilized after getting their asses kicked by the Bills uh, last week in a relatively uncompetitive game. So, the Titans definitely returned to form. Derrick Henry was kind of back to his old self, uh, running the ball quite effectively. And they were able to get uh, a nice win by beating the Raiders. And the Raiders are the only team in the NFL that are still winless. They are at an 0-3 record and uh, definitely some room to be desired as far as I'm concerned, or definitely some room for improvement, I should say, when it comes to the Raiders. After that, uh, in an NFC South battle, uh, the Panthers came out on top, winning by the score of 22-14 to over the New Orleans Saints. Uh, after that, uh, we got the Ravens and the Patriots. Uh, the Ravens beat the Patriots by the score of 37-26. to uh, Lamar Jackson absolutely cooked in this game. Uh, it's really kind of been a consistent trend the entire year. Uh, Lamar is basically putting the Ravens on his back with the offense. Uh, the defense always also stepped up as well. Uh, they definitely learned from their mistakes against Miami in Week 2 by creating a lot of turnovers against New England in that Week 3 matchup. But the biggest news coming from that game was Mac Jones getting hurt at the end of the fourth quarter. It has been revealed that he has a high ankle sprain. Uh, they will determine whether or not that he's going to be out for the next four to eight weeks. It could be as high as eight, could be as low as four to six. So time will tell on that. But it is kind of a sigh of relief for Patriot fans just knowing that after the initial injury took place, it could have been a season-ending leg injury with what we saw with Max reaction. But there is a possible chance that he returns within the next month, month and a half or so. But like I said, time will tell on the results and the severity of of that injury. Uh, after that, we kick it over to the NFC North with the Vikings beating the Lions in a very competitive matchup. Uh, the Vikings won by the score of 28 to 24. Uh, the Vikings stabilized after that disastrous Monday night performance that they had against the Eagles in week two. Kirk Cousins had a solid day, was able to lead a game winning drive for the Vikings in the fourth quarter against the Lions and beat a pretty solid Lions team so far. The Lions have been a team that have been somewhat competitive and somewhat solid throughout this year so far. So it was a good win for the Vikings to get back in the win column. Uh, after that, uh, we have the Bears beating the Texans by the score of 23-20. to This was a game that was kind of back and forth, but the Bears end up going to 2-1 and one on the year. That's probably one of the more shocking results uh, early on in the NFL season, knowing that the Bears are above 500, above 500 with a team that essentially has no offensive line. So I got to give them a lot of credit for that. After that, we'll kick it over to the NFC West, where the Rams win a close battle against the Arizona Cardinals by beating them 22-12. So they moved to 2-1 on the year. And then to basically round this out, uh, the Falcons went on the road to beat the Seattle Seahawks by the score of 27-23. As far as the Sunday night game is concerned, um, you guys will know the result by the time that this releases anyway. So um, just for clarification or just for I guess, context here. At this point in time, 
Uh, the 49ers are beating the Broncos by the, the score of seven to three. Uh, it's another performance where it looks like the Browns are not, not the Browns, the Broncos are not cooking. Russell is not cooking. And we'll see if, um, we'll see if the 49ers with Jimmy G can prove to be a solid force moving forward. And we see, we'll see whether or not the Russell and the Broncos can get it together. But that pretty much rounds out the week three slate. Um, now that we've covered all the NFL topics, uh, Kevin, we got to talk about Albert Pujols. I'll let you take the floor on this one. So, over the weekend, Albert Pujols, uh, one of baseball's greatest right-handed hitters, one of the best players to ever put on a Cardinals uniform, eclipsed the mark of 700 career home runs. Uh, I think that that is a feat that not only needs to be talked about, but it needs to be appreciated and respected. He decided to come back one final time and kind of dress up as a Cardinal one final season. And within this season, he has played pretty tremendously, quite honestly. Um, he's batting 265. He's got 21 home runs. He's got 58 RBIs. And for someone his age to be doing it at the clip that he is at 42, it's pretty impressive. And he ends up hitting back-to-back home runs in terms of back-to-back at-bats to hit 699 and 700. So, Kyle, I'm going to pose this one to you. How impressive is it that not only at this age, he's playing at such a high level, but to reach the milestone that only three people before him were able to achieve? Well, when you're in a class of Hank Aaron, Barry Bonds, and Babe Ruth, that's an elite class. And the way that Albert did it, I thought was extremely impressive because when we look at milestones of this magnitude, there's a lot of pressure that comes along with it. And the fact of the matter is, is throughout the year, Albert, you know, got off to a slow start at the plate. But as time went on, it seemed like Albert was getting comfortable at the batter's box. And then really the second half of the year, he's just been phenomenal. He's been on a tear, just hitting dingers left and right. And you know, as we got closer to him getting to 700 home runs, the, you know, the question at the time was, you know, he's got a very good shot of getting it. Is he just going to get there or is the pressure going to be too much for him to handle? Well, that was a resounding no based off of what he did in Dodger Stadium the other night. And the fact that he did it in bat-to-back at-bats, the, the amount of confidence that he had in those two at-bats was just striking to me. And, you know, to do it against his former team, he did suit up with the Dodgers a couple of years back, and even his former manager, when he, seeing his reaction when Albert hit his 700th home run, uh, it was quite the sight just because, you know, for a split second, man, the Dodgers manager just got super excited for Albert knowing what he just did. And, you know, for him to do it against his former team, granted it was only for a small stint, I thought was a nice touch. I mean, to me, it still would have been nicer for him to do that at home in St. Louis, but still... Just to put that to the side, what Albert did by getting to 700 home runs, it's an impressive feat. And I will say that it is probably one of the more impressive accomplishments that we've seen in baseball in quite some time. Just because, you know, when it comes to baseball and the amount of analytics that have been injected into the game, players aren't necessarily playing as much anymore. Uh, managers are a lot more selective about putting players out there on the field. Uh, more consistently throughout the year compared it's just it's really kind of come with the development of baseball within the last couple of years it's just players are not playing as many games as they used to but the fact that albert is still going out there at the age of 42 years old and still hitting dingers at the consistent rate that he's at man what a feat you know the, the, and by the way you know the cardinals are probably going are going to the playoffs you know the, they're going to be the team that's going to represent the nl central this year so 
it wouldn't surprise me if Albert probably gets closer to like 705, 706 uh, before his career is wrapped up and finished. But as far as the feat is concerned, man, what an accomplishment. And to be quite honest with you, I think it's going to be quite some time before we see somebody hit that 700 home run mark. It may be, it may be like a decade or two before we see somebody even get close to eclipsing that. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, Max, I, I know you don't watch a lot of baseball, but I mean, we grew up in the same house where dad cheered for Pujols pretty much every single time, no matter what team he was on. And I mean, the history that is a part of what Pujols has done, not only as a professional baseball player, but as a Hispanic, um, is pretty huge. I know A-Rod got 696, but that is kind of skewed because of the you know performance-enhancing drugs that he was caught with not once, but twice. Who knows how many other times he probably had to utilize it, but again, neither here nor there. So, I mean, I'm kind of going to take this one. I mean, Max, unless you have something to say about Pujols' performance. As you said, I don't really know much about baseball. I mean, there's only a handful of names that I knew growing up. I mean, at the time, we had like Albert Pujols, Robinson Cano, Derek Jeter, Rivera. That's basically all I knew. But Pujols has been a guy we've been watching for our whole lives, basically. Yeah, so I mean, and I'll take it from here. I mean, just to go over the Hall of Fame resume that this man has just eclipsed pretty much in his career. Rookie of the Year in 2001. Three-time MVP. 11-time All-Star. Two-time Gold Glove. Six-time Silver Slugger Award winner. NLCS MVP. Two-time World Series champion. He's received the batting title, and he's received the honor of being the Major League's most valuable, excuse me, Major League's player of the year. I don't know how that's a separate award from MVP, but that's what it's rated here on one of the websites that we leverage, baseballreference.com. I mean, statistically, for his career, Albert Pujols has 3,378 hits. He has had a batting average consistently at an average of 296. He scored 1,907 runs. He's batted in 2,208 2, runs. He has a slugging career percentage of 543, an on-base percentage of 917. What what else can you say? Excuse me. On-base percentage is 374. His OPS is 917. I apologize. Sometimes you get the metrics skewed. And then, of course, 700 home runs. There is no feat that Albert Pujols has not accomplished. Defensively, he's got the gold glove. Offensively, he's done the MVP. He's a champion. He's done the batting titles. He's played on multiple teams, and he has been productive in each. Obviously, you know, when he went to L.A., it didn't pan out the way that they had expected in, ter- in trying to, you know, assimilate a super team with, obviously, Mike Trout, Josh Hamilton, and so on and so forth. But he returns to St. Louis, Louis and does it in amazing fashion. Shout out to one of my good friends, A.J. Larson. He's a massive St. Louis Cardinals fan. Thankfully, we were able to watch this in his house on Friday night when he both home runs 699 and 700. I know that was a huge moment for him. As I know, Derek Jeter's 3,000th hit was a big moment in our house. So, you know, kudos to my boy and being a loyal St. Louis fan, despite having the up and down years that they've had recently. But again, the legacy that Albert Pujols leaves behind is going to be one of the greatest right-handed hitters in all of baseball. Arguably the greatest Hispanic player in all of history. And you're going to go out there and say one of the greatest first basemen in all of Major League history. His image and mark will forever be left on the game. And obviously, if the Cardinals are able to carry this out and win, and he caps it off with another World Series, he's already been a for sure first ballot Hall of Famer, despite 700. 
that title will be the perfect ending to a illustrious career. And I couldn't be happier for him, man. Albert Pujols, congratulations. You're an incredible, incredible baseball player. I'm happy to say that I grew up watching you pretty much my entire life. Shout out to my dad. Put me on who he is. Obviously, when you're younger, you don't know who anybody is outside of the Yankees because there's not exactly Cardinals games in New York. But shout out to my dad. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't even know who this man is. And I'm happy that I was introduced because, you know, cheers. What an incredible, uh, an incredible career. And I hope it just continues for him. Yeah, the feat of 700 home runs. And Kev, I think we have to start kind of coming up with the possibility that we may not see another player get to 700 home runs. I think with the, I don't see it. I think with the amount of analytics that have been injected into the sport, and granted, I think analytics are useful in in their own place. But with players not playing as consistently as they used to, um, I, I think unless, you know, a player goes out there and averages hitting somewhere between 30 to 50 home runs consistently for 15 to 20 years. You know, I think, you know, we might see players get up to like 500 home runs, maybe 600, but 700 is going to be a tough feat moving forward. And like we already stated, you know, to see somebody get to 700 home runs, I mean, it took Albert Pujols 20 years to get to that point. So, you know, he, he was he was able to show the longevity, which is something that you need to be able to get to that feet. And not only that, you had to be able to effectively hit the baseball at the clip that he did. So, you know, you could look around the league right now, and there there are some players that could come to mind that could hit 700 home runs. Mike Trout, uh, Aaron Judge. I mean, if Aaron Judge is able to hit freaking 50 to 60 home runs consistently until the end of his career, maybe he could get to a point like that. But I think that's highly doubtful. Uh, you know, I think just overall, I think it's going to be a while before we see somebody hit that mark. If, I, if ever I, again. I, 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 I won't rule out ever, but I think with the way that baseball is trending, I don't think we're going to see it anytime soon. I really don't. So that may be like, you may kind of look at that 700 home run club as like essentially like a Mount Rushmore club of just, 100%. these might be the, like the only four individuals that you would consider in that club because there's only a handful of players that are capable of doing that. You have to hit the ball consistently and you have to be out there on the field. And with the way that players are utilized now, the players are not playing, you know, 90 to 95% of the games like they used to, you know, know, it's it's around like 75 to maybe 80%, you know, and that's, that's opportunities that, you know, are taken away either based off of injury or, you know, coaching decisions or, you know, just personal players, opinions, about going out there and playing consistently, but it's going to be a while before we see, see someone hit 700, 700 home runs. But overall, uh, just what a feat by Albert Pujols and, you know, tip of the cap to him, bro. Really, like, you know, got to give it to him. But um, but with that said, that pretty much wraps it up for us. Um, Max, is there anything else that you wanted to add to the conversation? That Go right ahead. Uh, not really. I'm just... Was I'm honored to be on the show, um, and that's that's mainly it. I was just coming on to speak about football, and and then I I knew you guys wanted to like end off with the Pujols stuff, and I just took a backseat to that because I'm not a big baseball guy, and I don't want to put my foot in my mouth. So, but again, just saying thank you so much. This was a big opportunity for me. No, we we appreciate. No, absolutely, we appreciate you having having you on and. 
bro, if you ever want to be on the podcast again, bro, just let us know. And uh, it's it's kind of rare that Kevin and I have guests to begin with. So uh, the, the door is always open for you. So just let us know and we'll definitely accommodate. Appreciate it. Kev, the floor is yours, bro. You could take us on home from here. Well, uh, guys, like anything else, like we do every week, uh, you know, this episode will be available tomorrow on all platforms. You know, YouTube, uh, you know, Instagram will have some clips. TikTok will have some clips. But we appreciate the support wherever we can get it. Uh, I, shout out to my brother. He's been a fan since literally we had zero subscribers. He's been a fan since we have been at the very beginning, shouting us out on Instagram, shouting us out on TikTok. I mean, you name it. My brother has probably been the top supporter since we started this podcast, not only uh, together, but individually when I was on my own, doing it in where he is right now, my old bedroom when I lived with my parents. Um, it's, it's, it's just crazy to have it come full circle, us being as successful as we are, and him to be a part of this journey. And, you know, not to sound like a sappy bum here, but without my brother, I feel like a lot of this wouldn't have been possible because he was the one that got me my ring light. He got me a lot of equipment. He was somebody that kept motivating me and pushing me to do better. Usually the big brother's supposed to be doing that for the younger one. But again, you know, you know, Max, you've been there since day one. I couldn't have done it without you. I genuinely appreciate you. And, you know, I know you and I butt heads a lot, but if you, like Kyle said, ever want to be on it again, you let us know. It's not like you don't know anybody on the podcast. So it's not exactly a struggle to find a schedule to figure it all out. But again, we're grateful for it to have you on. We appreciate everything you've done for us. And uh, for everybody else listening in, we appreciate all the support on every single platform that we have. And of course, as football progresses, the NBA approaches and October baseball approaches for the playoffs. We're going to continue to have plenty of content day in and day out. And uh, we just can't wait to continue to provide you guys with our sports feedback and opinions. And with all that being said, man, I'll, I'll ride it on out. We'll see you guys again soon and appreciate everything that you guys have been doing for us. Welcome to Tuning In To Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning In To Sound Wellbeing today. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour.